Hi, I'm Mandy. And I'm Heather. And this is our producer, Kayleen. Hi there. We're so glad you're here. Here's the thing. You have uncomfortable storylines in your life. We are creating a space for vulnerable storytellers to open up about growth and refinement. You deserve the same relationship with grace because it is so much more than a Bible buzzword. Welcome to Uncomfortable Grace. Hi, it's Mandy K. Part, co-host of the Uncomfortable Grace podcast. I wanted to personally introduce this week's interview with Kevin Nye titled Grace in Homelessness. But before I forget, I also want to thank you for continuing to listen. These life-changing stories are making a massive impact, but frankly, we're just not quite satisfied. So if you're able to do so, please take a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. This simple act helps Apple and other podcast platforms know that you like what you're hearing, you want to hear more of us, and it helps us get the word out about our amazing guests. And speaking of amazing guests, let's talk about Kevin. (laughs) Kevin is a case manager in Los Angeles working with the homeless population. He is so passionate about helping this underserved community find love, support, resources, stability, and whatever else they need, while also creating literacy around the concept of homelessness and breaking off misunderstandings about those without homes. I first met Kevin through Twitter. He is an author and an active participant in hashtag writing community, which is full of people that I am just enamored with. Kevin is currently in the final stages of preparing his book for a publisher, and he is writing about what it means to carry grace for the homeless population in our cities. Protecting the dignity of this vulnerable group is humbling work, but honestly, Kevin's kind demeanor makes him so well-suited to offer the advice and the advocacy needed both in that community and for the rest of us who need to learn. So I am so happy to bring this story to each of you. Thanks again for your support of this podcast and for listening. And I think you're really going to enjoy this interview and learn at least one new way, hopefully, that you can show up for those in need in your community, wherever you're listening. So let's dive into Grace in Homelessness with Kevin Nye. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for being here today. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I, I love following you on Twitter. I love seeing your heart for the homeless community and just the way that you have started to, at least in my mind, change the way I think, the way I approach um, even the idea of a conversation about the homeless community. Um, so before we dive into all that really good stuff, why don't you tell me and tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, and thanks for saying that. That is that is my my mission, and it's nice to know that um, being on Twitter has any sort of positive outcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I my name's Kevin. Uh, I live and work in Los Angeles. Uh, I work at a nonprofit doing homeless services and advocacy. Um, but I'm also a trained minister. Uh, I have an MDiv from Fuller Theological Seminary. 
uh, and an expired uh, minister's license from the Church of the Nazarene. <laughs> I, I like to say that because it, it piques interest. We can talk about that more later. Um, and uh, I'm also a writer. I, um, I've been writing for a long time on the intersections of theology and popular culture, but more recently as I've um, really established myself in homeless services have been turning a lot of my writing attention toward writing about where homelessness intersects with uh, Christian faith and theology uh, and specifically on the notion of grace, which is in the title Mm. of your podcast. Uh, Uh, So um, yeah. And I'm, so I'm currently writing uh, a book on homelessness and grace and yeah, that's, that's me. I, I love that your book is even titled Grace and Homelessness, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, title pending, but Grace title will be pending. in there somewhere. Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> well, tell me about why your work became, uh, because you can have a heart and do the work, but how did you decide, you know what, I actually need to write a book about this because there has to be something that triggered where it's a bigger conversation that you're not able to have on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I mean, I've always been a writer um, long before I wanted to be anything else. I wanted to be a writer. And so um, it's always been a dream of mine to write a book. And I've had a billion different ideas about what that book could be over the years. But um, as my, my life has ended up as a, you know, a, a theologically educated person um, who is trained in ministry, but not doing traditional church ministry and really involved in the world of homelessness. Um, it just, it just so made sense that that needed to be what I was writing about. And uh, as I was thinking about it um, and, and really it was that I've been working in homeless services for a while and the conversations that I was having with Christians about homeless services almost felt like they were completely detached and had nothing to do Mm. with what I was seeing in my work as like what needed to change and what needed to happen was not the conversations that, uh, and not just Christians, but that anyone outside of that world knew to ask or knew to have yeah. And I was like, okay, what, what's missing here? What, what is this gap? It, do I, I'm going to start writing about it, but what is it that's, that's missing? And I eventually kind of boiled it down to, to grace in a way. Um, and, and that's where once I, once I made that connection and had that thought, and I was able to then apply that idea to all of the different intersections of homelessness, right? Whether, because when you talk about how homelessness, you can easily start talking about a billion other things, right? Right. Um, you can talk about housing and shelter and hunger, poverty. You can talk about substance use and addiction, mental illness. You can talk about foster care. Like uh, yeah. ho- homelessness is actually... Uh, less of a uh, less of a, a failed system as much as like the the last safety net or it's it's not mm. a safety net it's it's the bottom it's the catch all of kind of the failures of 
so many of our systems, right? Yeah. It's the manifestation of, of the brokenness in the other systems. Yeah. Yes. That's such a good way of saying it. Yeah. I I describe it often as like homelessness is like a hospital. Like there's a billion Mm -hmm. reasons why you end up at the hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes, sometimes it's partly your fault. Like, you know, you're a kid and you stacked up a ramp on (laughs) like an unsturdy foundation and went off of it on your bike. And that's why you're in the hospital. And other times you're in the hospital because uh, you caught COVID, (laughs) you know? Totally. Uh, And, and so it's this place where so where everyone is from so many different walks of life can end up. And Mm -hmm. also that everyone who ends up there should be, responded to and treated with dignity right so absolutely um yeah so i got a little bit off of your original question nope it's uh, good but once i realized this connection to grace and i realized oh to talk about homelessness you have to talk about all of these things and i think Mm -hmm. that in all of these areas we need to apply this idea of grace and it it Mm -hmm. manifests a little bit differently in each one that's when I realized, oh, this is, this is a larger piece. This is, this is the book I've been wanting to write. And now that I, now that I get it, I, I want to start writing it. That's so, so incredible that you can recognize all the different nuanced parts of homelessness and have the inner grace to like turn that into a book without just turning it into a judgment or a tirade, right? Because I can already tell, like your heart is not to just make this book a condemnation against how we have failed the homeless population, but rather to call us higher as individuals to learn how to manifest grace. You had this um, amazing quote that's on your Twitter page that I'm going to read it to you because I think I want to hear from you. Um, what it would mean. So you said, as long as we bring theological prejudices to homelessness, i.e. beliefs that people deserve their poverty or that Jesus alone can rescue them from it, then we will continue to need a theological response. We will need to relearn the meaning of grace. How did your role with the homeless homeless population in LA start to teach you the meaning of grace in a different way that you understood? from your previous role as a minister? That's a really good question. Uh, So I I think that, you know, part of what led me away from traditional church ministry and into, you know, secular or a non-religious nonprofit um, was how much I was convicted by my ministerial and theological training about God's heart for social justice and, uh, and for the poor. And so a lot of that was ingrained in sort of an academic or intellectual way. Um, and so then I came to homeless services with all of these ideas about, you know, what, what God cares about and who God is calling me, but also calling the church to, um, to emphasize and to serve. Uh, And so I say that to say it wasn't necessarily that working with people experiencing homelessness is what changed my mind about um, that 
that population needed grace. That's why I kind of went there in the first place. Mm. But but so much has changed about what I understand about the issue and also what I understand about my role in it. Because uh, yeah. it, it was very, very easy to uh, to be a white man in seminary convicted to go into social services and show up ready to save the world. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. I got, I got oofed a lot <laughs> in the first few <laughs> years. Um, and what I had to learn really, really quickly. And, and it's, it's a bummer that I didn't learn this from the church, but I learned it from, uh, from best practices in social services mm-hmm. uh, is that a good, consistent, healthy, and effective approach to something like case management of somebody experiencing homelessness uh, has to lay aside saviorism. It has to lay aside mm-hmm. the desire to fix to lead, to give, uh, in, in lieu of the approach that is needed, which is just a pure partnership that is actually led, um, you know, to use like a dancing metaphor. If you are, if you are a dancing partner with the person who you're working with, they're leading, um, yes, and you're a big part of that dance and you in your, your privilege, your education have a lot to bring to that relationship to help them meet their goals and help them navigate the systems that stand between them and their goals. But it has to be their goals and it has to be their their dance, if you will. Um, and that that is what I didn't learn <laughs> that I had to learn um, and that I had to fail at <laughs> gracefully and ungracefully mm-hmm. many times along the way. So, so it wasn't so much that working with the poor changed my heart for the poor, but it definitely changed uh, how I see um, the interplay of uh, working with that population and, and how important it is to recognize their, their agency, their goals. Yes. Um, And I, you know, somebody Somebody brought this up recently. I was in a clubhouse room talking about uh, talking about homelessness, and somebody brought up the the verse that a lot of people use to uh, emphasize caring about social justice, which is when Jesus says, "Whatever you've done for the least of these, mm-hmm. you've done to me." Uh, and that's a really great verse to convince people that, to care about poor people or people experiencing homelessness, right? But you can actually take it further and say, you know, if whatever I do for the least of these is what I do for Jesus, I think that I probably would not want to approach Jesus in a paternalist savior complex way, right? Like (laughs) With a formula and a 10-step program and instructions with no room for failure. Exactly. Like if I actually believed that the person on the street corner who I was going to try to help was Jesus, I would probably spend a lot of time listening and a lot of time, yes, asking, Hey Jesus, what do you, what are you asking of me? You know? Uh, And so 
like I love that verse and how it's inspired so many people to to care mm-hmm. about these issues. But we we need to take it even further and, and recognize that uh, if we're entering that relationship, believing that that person is the manifestation of Jesus, then mm. then that person needs to play a much more central role in that conversation and in that relationship than we've normally uh, allowed that person to play. Well, it's, it's so, when you say it like that, it seems so straightforward. It's easy for me to say, well, of course, that's what we need to do. And in practice, I mean, I work as a coach and even this morning I was talking about how as someone offering support to a person in grief, you have to actually sit back and ask, did, did they want my casserole or do they, do I just really want to be able to give them a casserole? Cause it makes me feel so good to show up and support them. Um, as opposed to becoming curious about like, well, wait a minute, what am I trying to get out of this? Am I trying to look like the good guy um, or whatever the theme? Right. And I think what you, you nailed, and even as your role as a case manager, um, the thing that you're seeing is this desperate need for us to allow humanity to continue to have its humanity, to preserve the dignity of people who are unhoused rather than shuffling them into categories of, well, they're unhoused because they choose it. They're unhoused because they don't want to, you know, don't want to deal with their drug addiction. Whatever the justification, we've become unbelievably comfortable as a culture with applying to these humans it's stopping us from seeing their humanity and it's stopping us from investigating our faith. If that's even connected to it as we go in and serve in these communities. So I love that you are actively telling people, no, no, you're not the hero and you shouldn't be the hero. And also maybe what makes you believe that you're the hero? <laughs> like, right. It's another really good question. So what, um, as you have been, working with the unhoused population, what are some of the things that you see those of us who are not working actively as a full, you know, full-time job in homeless services? What is it that you find is the most impactful thing the lay person can do as opposed to, you know, without showing up and saying, I'm here to serve quietly and say nothing and just learn. I mean, what would you, what advice would you give to people who are going into this kind of an industry or even just want to help? Yeah. Well, uh, I would certainly encourage people to get involved in a local agency. Uh, cause mm-hmm. unless you are, unless you have an opportunity to actually sit with people and, you know, hear stories and mm-hmm. learn names, like that's where the change happens. Like, you know, I'm writing a book and I'm telling a lot of stories, hoping that that can move some people, but it's a a drop in the bucket compared to if you can actually get to know people personally. Right. Um, So I, I highly encourage that. And then kind of on a more systemic level, I do really encourage people to get involved in local politics. Um, I know that, uh, politics are not fun to talk about and cause, you know, a lot of anxiety and and pain. Um, when it comes to homelessness, very little is decided 
on the federal presidential sexy politics level. Um, If you turn on CNN or your evening news uh, Mm. or national news, you're not going to hear about a lot of policies that are going to affect homelessness in your city. Uh, It's really those down ballot measures, the ones with the numbers and the letters that you get all mixed up that you read when you're voting and go, I have no idea what to vote for this. I don't even know what this means. Those are the ones that make monumental difference for people experiencing homelessness in your, in your town, in your city, in your state. Um, So yeah. I'm not saying you have to become an expert. I think one of the best things that you can do is find an organization or advocacy group that you trust. And they'll usually put out a voter guide that explains, Mm. you know, this is why we support or oppose this. And this is the effect that we think it'll have on this population that we care about. Um, Just doing that at a minimum uh, can really, really affect, um, affect the the lives and the well-being of people experiencing homelessness in your neighborhood so there's there's a direct piece there's an individual piece but there's also a a larger social piece to caring about this because because like we said uh, there's our our systems are are failing pretty much right most all (laughs) of them Mm -hmm. are are failing in ways that uh, create and perpetuate homelessness so we are going to have to confront some of those, all of those, uh, to make a big difference. But, uh, it also, it does, it does start in the mindset. It does start with changing some of our deeply held beliefs about what poor people and people experiencing homelessness deserve and what they don't deserve and why they are in the situation that they are, um, we have to confront those. And then once we do, we have to apply it, not just in our personal immediate circles, but to our larger systems. Yeah. I love that you said that because I was just thinking, I wonder what misconceptions Kevin carried into this work initially that have completely blown up and changed how you do this ministry. And you kind of answered it earlier with um, regards to, you know, becoming curious and asking questions instead of walking in as a hero. Um, but I wonder if you have like a story of someone who just completely obliterated your, your prejudgments or Mm. like early in the work, like there's someone I'm sure that sticks in your mind. They're like, this is, this is a person who can change the life of everyone who meets them. And I want to tell their story. Do you have someone like that? I wish I had one person that did that for, <laughs> for all of it, but I have a bunch of people that, that did it for little different aspects, right? Because mm-hmm. like we said, it, it's so many different issues that homelessness encapsulates. And there are, there are people who helped me understand more about substance use and addiction and those systems. Mm-hmm. There's, there are people who've really helped me understand the failures of our, our mental health system, um, kind of in, in each of those aspects, there are people that have, have shaped me and shaped how I think about those based on, on their experiences and stories. Um, 
So it's really, it's hard to pinpoint one without kind of selecting one of those examples at the expense of sure. the others. Um, but so now I'm, now I'm, now you're making me choose between, <laughs> uh, I almost said like choosing between my children, but that would be the paternalistic <laughs> instinct or at least the, the language. Um, yeah. What's a good one. Um, okay. So there, and I have to, I have to change his name. Uh, yes. we'll call him David. Uh, so David is somebody who struggles, struggled and continues to struggle with addiction, uh, specifically to methamphetamines. Mm -hmm. He, uh, attends a lot of our programs, comes to our recovery groups, um, but, you know, is, is not, at, at this time was not necessarily on a, on a path towards sobriety or, or really doing well in that at all. Um, he, he showed up at our gate one day, uh, end of day on a Friday, just like sitting outside kind of languishing. And when I went to talk to him, I said, Hey, David, what's going on? Are you okay? And he's just said, I can't do this anymore. And my first thought was like, Oh, okay. Um, I need to start asking some questions to find out if this is, you know, suicidal ideation or uh, mm -hmm. go down that, that path. But that, that wasn't the path. It was, uh, he was, he was coming down from a high and feeling miserable and said, I'm ready to go into treatment. And yeah. that, that you would think is just absolute music to my ears, right? Like, oh my goodness, sure. he's ready. He, he wants to accept help. Uh, but having been in that field for a while, I, I was worried about how it was going to end up, but I was like, okay, I'm going to try to jump on this opportunity, talk to him for a while. And, and then I went in went inside and talked to our clinical director. I said, Hey, David's out there. He's, he's wanting treatment. Can you, can you help me find a bed? Uh, and he made some, made some calls, you know, called in a couple favors and he found a treatment facility that was willing to provide him a bed that night. And um, the clinical director said, I'll even drive him there. Mm. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is the kind of win that we're hoping for. Let me go outside and pitch it to him. And I said, uh, all right, David, we got you a bed. Um, we just got to get in the car and let's go. And he said, where is it? Mm -hmm. And that's the question that I didn't want to hear because yeah. the only treatment center that was available uh, was in Skid Row. And we're, mm. we're up in Hollywood. Um, mm -hmm. And when he found out it was in skid row, he said, Nope, no thanks. Yeah. And no amount of convincing could turn him around for that. He got on his bike and he went away for the day. Um, and <sighs> that was really, really defeating and really frustrating because one of the realities of, uh, homeless services is that so often the services 
that we're willing to to build and put are only allowed to be built and put in certain areas that are extremely undesirable because of nimbyism. Um, and I guess I should articulate what nimbyism is. Find that word. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, it stands for not in my backyard. Um, mm. It's it's the yeah it's people who are resistant or who are seemingly supportive of homeless services of treatment of all of these things but say yes i want those things but don't put it near me uh because mm. of property values because of all of these other ideas about i want i want them to be helped but i don't want to see it um and it's really really pervasive and it leads to this situation where Hollywood has the the second highest density of people experiencing homelessness in LA outside of Skid Row, but we have so much trouble building or starting any facilities or services. Uh, all of LA has that trouble because they say, you know, just put it down in Skid Row, just put it down there. Right. Uh, and the fact is the people who don't live in Skid Row don't want to go to Skid Row. Putting a drug treatment facility in the middle of Skid Row is like putting like a dentist in the middle of a candy store. Right. Like as soon as he comes out of that treatment facility, he's going to be surrounded with uh, everything that he is wanting to avoid. Opportunity to yes, stumble and absolutely that support system is completely absent. Yeah. Right. <sighs> and so uh, for me, that's a story that I, th I think about a lot and that I tell yeah. all the time about the need to put services where people are because uh, yes. Hollywood will complain up and down all day about the presence of drug users, people, you know, outside the library shooting up about needles being on the sidewalk. When you say, OK, let's put up some treatment. They're like, oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> I meant get rid of them. <laughs> I just wanted you to move them away from me because right. the drugs I like are behind closed doors. Yes. Um, oh, that's another conversation. So sorry. Oh, yeah, no. um, <laughs> we, can, we can go there or we cannot go there. Either way. We won't go there today. Okay, fair enough. Um, you said something that it kind of segues to me about your, um, your change in uh, your licensure and your original career path, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The This idea mm -hmm. that, I want you to help the people, but I don't want you to do it in a way that offends or disappoints me. And I know we had spoken off, um, off camera about how your, your pivot came after working with homeless services for quite some time, because you saw a need here to show up for people in a way that your, the faith you were ordained within didn't agree with. Mm -hmm. You want to tell that story a little bit? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two parts to that story that, that coincide that are, they're related, but also different. And uh, I, I want to, I want to draw the distinction that the, my denomination was not unsupportive of my work in homeless services, mm -hmm. um, but they were also, they also didn't see it as enough or as ministry, like um, mm -hmm. as, as I was building up hours toward ordination, my work in homeless services didn't count. Um, okay. Interesting. And 
and I was I was okay with that. Um, on a practical level, on an ideological level, I was like, "Come on, how can you not see this?" But right. But I was like, "Okay, I, I can, I can accept that." Um, mm. And so ultimately, I was just from a career and vocation standpoint, wasn't feeling called to serve in a church as my, you know, as my paid work. Um, that's what homeless services was. And that's where I was feeling, um, feeling like my, feeling like God was calling me. Um, and it was also around that time. So this was 20, around like 2016, 2017, that all this was happening. And astute remembers of that time will remember that's also when Trump was elected. And there was a lot of, uh, within the denomination, a lot of kind of line drawing and uh, Mm. gatekeeping starting to happen that previously was a little looser. And I found myself going for my annual uh, license renewal interview where you sit in front of a panel of like pastors and leaders in the denomination who like sometimes will just like ask you how you're doing and want to know about your ministry. And then other times they will just randomly grill you on like a theological idea and you have to go in prepared for any of it. And so I, I went in at the beginning of 2017, uh, not knowing what to expect and, and, but knowing that just kind of in the air, there was this like inner battle going on Mm. between more conservative people and more progressive people around particular issues because of the election and what that had brought up in everybody. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and so I went in and they knew that I was working in homeless services. They knew that I was really passionate about social justice. And so their questions were really grilling me on social justice. And it came around to, um, two questions about my my theological and personal convictions around LGBTQ plus people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the denomination that I was in is not affirming, uh, mm-hmm. but I was. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I had always believed and held that I was willing to be affirming in a non-affirming denomination and help work toward uh, the church becoming more open in mm-hmm. that without trying to start a, like a church civil war. Um, sure. My, my posture on that was, this is my belief. This is your belief. And I'm going to pursue justice and unity simultaneously. So Mm. I tried really hard in that interview because they pinned me down on it to say, this is where I'm at, but I'm also, I'm not going to, you know, get up in a pulpit every Sunday and like beat everyone over the head with my belief because that's not good preaching necessarily. And that's not good leadership. (laughs) It's not good teaching. Yeah. Um, And so and it began a series of dialogue with the leadership of the denomination that culminated in 
them saying like, we're going to renew your license. We're not kicking you out of the denomination, nothing that dramatic, but uh, if you want to be ordained, this is going to be an obstacle. They're going to ask you about this. And if you're honest about it, they won't ordain you. It was more of like mm. a matter of fact um, thing. And so that, that led me down the road of trying to figure out, okay, what do I do? Do I, mm-hmm. do I just keep trying and hope that the, the winds change a bit? It seemed like mm-hmm. because of 2016, they were now blowing in a different direction than they previously might've been. Um, do I just try to hide it and hope they don't ask or craft some sort of answer that <laughs> answers without answering and, you know, <laughs> do the, all the verbal and theological gymnastics to like get in before the door closes. Um, <laughs> and ultimately I decided for myself that, that I needed to just step away. And I had the, mm. I had the privilege and security of like a thriving career in homeless services to catch me, like my income mm-hmm. and my vocation wasn't dependent on my ordination or that mm-hmm. process at that time. So um, that's when I kind of made the transition that had already been happening for so long mm-hmm. anyway. Um, but it was, it was painful. It was hard. It was all of those, those things about, you know, church confrontation and church leaving, even though I didn't really leave, I, I experienced a lot of, a lot of all of that. Um, yeah. Was it worth it? Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) good. Yeah, it was definitely worth it. And, um, yeah, I felt, I felt so much peace after it and and got so much support from people that were still in the denomination and people like out of nowhere, just everyone supported me and people reached Mm. out to me and told me like stories that they'd never told me about, you know, something I had said to them or something I had done in ministry that was meaningful to It was like, wow, (laughs) I, I did not deserve (laughs) all of that but um, mm. it was such a freeing and um, and beautiful experience that I was so afraid of going into that I, I'm so grateful for now. Well, it's almost as if you revealing your backbone where you're willing to draw the line gave freedom to other people who are like, oh my gosh, this is a weight I've carried and I see the way you've impacted my life. And now you're continuing to impact my life, even though you're quote unquote, going outside of the ministry. Right. I mean, that's a remarkable character to put on display almost in a lot of ways, more effective than you might've been as a preacher. You never know. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. And I really had the benefit of being in therapy at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't go to therapy to help me resolve this issue, but it happened (laughs) at the same time. And I'm so (laughs) grateful. Uh, and and with that, that work, I just, I worked, I worked with my therapist, uh, similar to what I was talking about with case management. He helped yeah. me, but my goals when I decided, okay, I need to make this decision and I need you to help me make this decision. These yeah. are the parameters I put on it. I said, whatever decision I make, 
I won't make it because I'm scared and Mm. I won't make it because I'm angry. Yeah. So all of that, uh, that using that, those boundaries helped me figure out exactly what I needed to do. Um, and anything that triggered one of those two things, I had to investigate and figure out, okay, what's still, Mm. what's still true. Uh, Mm -hmm. and what's still, uh, what's still real if I, once I'm not reacting in that way. (laughs) And I I don't want to make it sound like those emotions are not helpful or true or, or a real part, but, but I needed, I needed to not act out of them. If that makes sense. Oh, it does. Absolutely. Those emotions are information. They're crucial. You need that information to make the right decision or a better decision for yourself. So you're good there. Um, gosh, is there anything else that you just want our listeners to know about carrying grace for people who are unhoused or your work or like one last plug before we Hmm. wrap this up? Sure. I guess, uh, I, I, throughout this, I don't think I spelled out exactly what I mean, uh, by grace. Um, mm. I guessing listeners to your podcast already have some sense of, of everybody what they has their or, own opinion. Yeah. So please yeah. give me yours. Yeah. So mine is obviously specifically shaped by my work. Um, mm. but I think that grace for me means that God gives us good things, because of who God is and not because we deserve it. Mm. Uh, And so for me, applying that to, to poverty, to homelessness, to homeless services means that all of our uh, theological and cultural beliefs about what people deserve and what, uh, what I've earned or haven't earned versus what somebody who is experiencing homelessness has earned or lost or given up or doesn't deserve because of some failure or aspect of their life. One, most of those things just aren't even true and we have to investigate Mm. that. But even if they are, grace means we have to throw all that out the window. Grace, Mm. Grace means that we give good things because of who God is and because of what God has done for us. Uh, And that whether or not people deserve, you know, a subsidized apartment, a free apartment, a free meal, um, a, a new government policy that isn't designed to weed out people who the, the government doesn't think deserves it. And only those who are the, like the best of the best among the homeless population, like all of that has to go out the window because of who yeah. God is, uh, and because of grace. So that that's the thesis of my work and my book and uh, hopefully everything I put out there, except, <laughs> except when I'm really feisty and angry about something and I get a little, <laughs> a little less graceful and hopefully delete later or apologize for. Yes. So we're reconciled. We all have moments where we then realize, Hmm, I'm going to need some mercy for that moment. Cause whoo, that was a real hot take. Yep. That's okay. Okay. So how can our listeners follow along with your work and, and hear about your book when it's coming out. Sure. So my website is kevinmni.com. Uh, mm-hmm. That's kind of the landing page for everything. You can sign up for my newsletter there, which is the best way to keep up with my book. 
Uh, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Kevin M Nye one. Uh, I don't know who beat me to at Kevin M Nye, <laughs> but don't follow them unless you want to follow them just to message them to give me their handle. Give up the name tag. Yes. Um, <laughs> And follow me on both, but uh, I'm definitely more active on Twitter. Twitter just makes more sense to me. Um, yeah. <laughs> Instagram is not my world, but I have one if you want to follow me. I usually okay. just screenshot my tweets. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. It works great. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kevin. I'm, I'm so grateful that you took this time and I cannot wait to follow along and read that book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you you having me and... I'm just overwhelmed anytime someone uh, wants to engage this difficult topic. It's uh, it means the world. Well, uncomfortable topics are kind of our specialty, so it worked out great. Awesome. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the uncomfortable grace podcast here. We are inviting men and women who demonstrate great levels of self-compassion, risk, brave decision-making and uncomfortable seasons to hold space for themselves and allow us to take a peek in at the process. Questions, comments, we'd love to hear from you. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Tell us your story. Find us on Instagram or shoot us an email at uncomfortablegracepodcast at gmail.com. Music from our episode is from Mix On, and you can find them at bandcamp.com. Thanks to our producer, Kayleen, and Studio Hall for the recording space. Like, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you listen. This week's episode is sponsored by Danny Hall Photography. You can find him on Instagram at Danny Hall 11.